I just remember some of the kids initially snickering at him like, oh, whatever. But as he went on, like this, this kid stood in his mana. He was like, no, I'm telling my story. And the more he spoke, it was like he turned the entire room of like unruly teenagers onto his side. At different points now, the rangatahi were like, oh yeah, like cheering him on. And now that person who had the, the courage to stand in their mana, to stand in their truth, is now being accepted and embraced because they're being seen for who they are and not what they look like. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora, welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. I'm the host of the podcast, Andy Dixon. Here in New Zealand, we're in week one of a full country lockdown, and there is a lot of other stuff happening around the world that can make things seem a little bleak. And that's why I love to bring these conversations to you, to help us all remember that there is good and beauty and life in the world, and that we can be a part of bringing a bit of heaven down to earth. Today we hear from Dietrich Sorkai, a beautiful man with a huge heart, especially for rangatahi or young people. We talk about growing up in New Zealand as a Pacific Islander, how he discovered poetry and got into youth work, and what he saw when they were held together, and also what he's doing now in the area of child advocacy. Some te reo Māori or Māori language terms that Dietrich uses include te ao Māori, meaning the Māori world or way of engaging with the world, rangatahi, young person, tamariki, children, pēpi, baby, and also mana, which Dietrich uses in a way that loosely means worth or value as a person. Look out for the challenge he leaves for us at the end of the corridor as well. This is episode 34 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Dietrich Sorkite. Kia ora, Dietrich. It's good to have you on the podcast. Kia ora. Thank you. Why don't we start just with you uh, giving us a bit of an introduction of who you are, um, where you're from, you know, Nohi Kui. Yeah, mean. Um, yeah, Malo Lele, Tala Falava. My name is Dietrich Sokai. Uh, born in Western Samoa, uh, and um, my, ma- my mother's Samoan, German, uh, Irish, Scottish, and possibly English. Uh, my dad is Tongan, and um, I think with Fijian ancestry as well, possibly even Uvian as well, but you know, still, still sort of following the breadcrumbs yeah. of that. Yeah, and uh, migrated here to Aotearoa back in '87. Uh, and so, how old were you then? Uh, like four. Oh yeah. And um, yeah, been in Aotearoa for most of my life. Uh, did a couple of years back in Tonga. Did form four and five, what's that, year 10, 10 and 11. 11, yeah, and yeah, just moved around heaps, like uh, South Auckland predominantly is where yeah. I spent most of my life, but also did like eight years in Palmerston North, sounds like like prisoners, prison sentences, yeah, did eight <laughs> years in, uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, eight years in Palmy and um, two years in Tonga, and yeah, just a bunch of time in, in, in South Auckland. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and now currently residing in the cold but scenic and beautiful uh, Ōtautahi 
And I, arguably, the, the more beautiful end of the country, Te Waipounamu. And I can say that because I've lived as a North Islander for most of my life. So to come down here is like, golly. Mm. Although the beaches down here. No. Nah. Yeah. I haven't been to Nelson yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, you'll like that. But yeah, no, we, we have had some cold this week, haven't we? Oh, man. <laughs> some, some good. Not, not snow that's settled, but. Yeah. Geez, Sleet. Cold. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So um, you talked about being both. Uh, Tongan and someone, as well as a, a mix a of other things. Of other things yeah. um, but living in New Zealand, what has it been like for you being a Pacific Island New Zealander? Has that been something that you've celebrated, something you've run away from? Um, yeah, how does that fit in yeah, with your um, journey? Well, my journey, more specifically, being Tongan and Samoan and all the other things, for some people they might not be aware that uh, Tonga and Samoa have history and quite a contentious history laced with conflict, mm. um, enslavement. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, uh, so that's kind of the backdrop. Yeah, I mean, growing up, I was constantly um, asked by respective families, you know, oh, are you Tongan or are you Samoan? You know, what, what, which, what kind of boy are you? You Tongan or Samoan? They're kind of asking you to choose? Yeah, to choose, to choose a side. Yeah, well... Um, and obviously, I think, I would hope, that it was mainly done in jest. Yeah. But, um, you know, when you're like six or seven, and you're being asked by your grandparents, both of them, respectively, you know, uh, you know, one time by your Tongan grandpa, and your Tongan, and then another time separately by your Samoan grandpa, your Samoan, and you're just like, oh, I don't know. And so um, I chose uh, neither and I chose to identify more with the All Blacks. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and it sounds kind of trivial, but it actually kind of, I feel, played a massive part in how I would be in the years that you know, mm. would follow. You know, growing up in, in Palmerston North, yeah, because I was in Palmy from, I think, the, from the age of like six or seven. Um, Till I was about 13. Mm. And yeah, Palmy was, uh, especially back then, um, there weren't many islanders. A lot of people were either Pākehā or Māori. Mm. And I didn't know it at the time, but a lot of the people who were um, at my school and the people that we hung out with were either devout Christians um, or farmers or hippies <laughs> so you know um, and uh, I was just really struggling to find a place of belonging and I ended up identifying quite massively with uh, Māori I remember I have a real distinct vivid memory of when I was like maybe seven possibly eight and I came across one of those sunshine books and mm. it, it was the story of Maui um, pulling the sun or slowing down the mm. sun and I almost cried for for some reason I don't really know anything like about fancy ideas of representation or anything like that but as a kid seeing that I don't know strangely I felt seen mm. um, especially in Palmy where it was predominantly Pākehā and there were some Māori around not many uh, and now I'm looking at this book that has someone brown mm. <laughs> um, 
And I just thought, man, I, I so wish I was Māori. Yeah, and that was kind of my, um, that kind of stuck with me, that stayed with me. Um, we would, I can't remember exactly where the marae was, whether it was out near Foxton or somewhere. But I remember we um, did like a primary school trip and I just, there was a, <laughs> um, at the time I thought he was like this a really cool, like older guy. But now as an older person looking back, I was like, actually, he probably was like quite a troublesome uncle <laughs> at the marae, you know, yeah. just, um, <laughs> just sort of chilling out at the marae. But it also just shows, you know, I really longed for like a positive or, or, or like a male somebody who kind of looked like me that I could be around or be affirmed by or, you know. Mm. So, yeah, being a Pacific Islander in Aotearoa, yeah, it was, it was difficult. Yeah, it was, it was challenging. I think for me, yeah, as I said, I was really longing to see kind of where I fit, mm. where I belonged. And then moving from Palmerston North up to Tāmaki Makoto, where uh, my cousins are and the rest of Polynesia, yeah. <laughs> to go from uh, predominantly farmers, hippies, Christians, Pākehā and some Māori to now predominantly Polynesian or Tangata Moana as I like to call it nowadays I was just like whoa like you know and I remember one, one I went to I rocked up to my cousins uh, I would have been like 13 at the time and I wanted to show them like some of my music I remember putting my, my tape in pressing play they're like looking at me like Sully what is this what I <laughs> I, I was listening to No FX Green Day Rancid, like all these punk rock bands, and my cousins, meanwhile, were listening to uh, Doggy Style, Snoop Dogg, Bone Thugs and Harmony. It was like a complete clash of culture in more ways than one. Mm. Um, and that was um, that was an interesting thing. Like, oh crap! Like now, how do I um, how do I be in this space, mm. in this place? You know, where music was the thing that I would use generally to connect with people. And now my own cousins are looking at me sideways like, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I was the opposite. I was, I was the white guy at school listening to Boys to Men and, and yes. All for One and all the, these brown boy groups getting, getting mocked for it. So, you know, I know how it feels, bro. Yeah, we should have swapped. We should have swapped at that point yeah. of our lives. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was... Um, you know, and then and moving up to South Auckland, and I think before I moved back up to South Auckland, I was beginning to experience a bit of racism. Mm. Um, one of my best friends, who I was currently living with, at, well, who I was living with him and his whānau at the time, and he's Pākehā, mm. and um, a long story, but basically my family were up in South Auckland, and I had to stay back in Pāmi for a couple of years. And so I stayed with my best friend, Pākehā, his family really looked after me, they really loved me, I really loved them. But um, yeah, it got to year nine, um, form three, and my friend, who's Pākehā, started sort of experiencing quite massive bullying um, from back then they called them the homies, <laughs> all, the, all the brown brothers. And over time, the house that I was staying in became quite tumultuous, kind of, there was a bit of turmoil there. Mm. And 
I remember walking in into my my best mate's room one time, and he had his other his other mate, and they were drawing um, what do you call it swastika, uh, the, yeah, the Nazi sign, yeah. you know, and and he had moved from punk rock, and now it started like edging towards like, you know, when you feel oppressed or when you feel threatened, you start sort of what's the word a grouping with other people who are feeling mm. like afraid or and I you know I was only 13 I didn't really know what was going on at the time but I started feeling a little bit like un uh, welcome like not mm. welcomed anymore in that space in that household so I was kind of experiencing that and then we went up to Auckland and you know said farewell to my friend we weren't like on bad terms but things weren't great either mm. It's kind of, yeah, quite yuck. But yeah, and then going to South Auckland, where, you know, how I was saying earlier about how people group together. Mm. Well, now my cousins are like, you know, red and blue are now colours that are starting mm. to like be quite prominent. And, you know, so like being a South Auckland, like a South Aucklander or a Pacific Islander living in South Auckland, you're kind of aware of the danger that sort of existed mm. you know you'd heard stories of like pretty gnarly stories like um of the the Samoan dudes who ran through the otara flea markets with machetes and cut up like anyone like just ran through you know so moving back up to tamaki and being aware of the the danger that or potential danger that was lurking and yet strangely seeing everyone who kind of looks like you as well that was like a like a weird thing yeah. to try and negotiate within one's 13 year old brain you yeah, know? yeah I can imagine. so now you're you know and like i said i'm i'm tongan as well i got like my cousins uh in otara where some of them were wearing red and then i had other cousins in gi who are tongan who are wearing blue <laughs> and now it's like and we're talking gang colours. Yeah, yeah, gang colours. For colors. those who, who oh, yeah, aren't aware, aware of that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, bloods and, and, and ri crips rival and, gangs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, and then kind of, and also listening to the music from gangster rap more specifically. And f I guess, yeah, that was kind of what I was growing up in, you know. And, and I think adolescence is always like a strange time in one's journey. Mm. Uh, for some of us, we want to forget. Others of us may be stuck in it. Mm. <laughs> um, but I was, yeah, it was such a, mm. a weird time to be uh, a Polynesian in the mid-90s. Yeah, and then um, I ended up going back to Tonga for two years, as I said earlier, and did um, my fourth form and fifth form mm. over there, um, which was great. I kind of needed that mm. and came back to Aotearoa cousins were a little bit older and um liquor is now flowing yeah, right. you know it, yeah it's just all that sort of stuff so how do you feel now that your um Samoan and Tongan heritage have you embraced it what is it that you identify with from your heritage uh, to be honest Te Ao Māori played a massive part in me finding my way back to the islands mm -hmm. because even all the way up until maybe 2010 maybe or I, I you know coming back from Tonga I was like yeah I'm Tongan 
I kind of like mm. that that kind of was grounded because I went to school, did high school, yeah. and then um, came back to Tamaki and, um, you know, still surrounded by a lot of Polynesians. But it was, it was, but how do I put this? I feel like for, for us as, as children of diaspora who spread out from our respective Polynesian islands to come to a bigger island, uh, Aotearoa, disconnected from our, our place of heritage, uh, we then, or I, started to uh, look for belonging in hip-hop mm. because that was something that we could all gravitate towards. But as I sort of was embracing like this sort of pseudo-hip-hop um, Tongan Samoan thing, wasn't until like 2010 maybe or 11 as I got into youth work and found out more about Dao Māori I, I started to really embrace Te Ao Māori. It was like I went back to like that seven-year-old kid or eight-year-old mm. kid who saw the Sunshine Book and I so desperately wanted to belong in this country mm. but the more I pressed into Te Ao Māori the more that Te Ao Māori was affirming my Samoan or my Tongan-ness, mm. my heritage, essentially pointing me back to Whakapapa mm. and essentially kind of pointing me back home. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not showing me away, yeah. but just pointing like, sorry, bro, you can't, you can't claim that maunga. Mm. <laughs> you can't claim that awa. <laughs> like, you're going to have to like, you know, really go back into your Whakapapa. And it was because of Te Māori that it led me back into that maybe that question that I didn't want to touch on which is where do I belong like mm. am I you know I kind of I was like yes I'm Tongan but still in my head I was like how much Tongan am I how much Samoan am I you know when actually the the Maori was like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how much of anything you are mm. if you're that then you're that and that's okay mm. and so I now would call myself Tangata Moana Tangata meaning people or peoples, uh, moana meaning the ocean. Mm. So people of the ocean. You have tangata whenua, people of the land, tangata moana, people mm. of the ocean. I feel like the ocean, as others have coined, is the biggest or largest continent. Mm. <laughs> so the thing that connects all of us, uh, our, our separate lonely islands, we're actually not that separate. Mm. Actually the ocean was a highway. And so um, I have found more... Uh, of what we have in common as tangata moana with tangata whenua we have more in common than we actually realize yeah. and it's the difference that actually is something that is and this is going to sound cheesy and cliche but whatever it's the difference that makes it uh, worth celebrating mm. and um, you know uh, so at the moment in terms of reconciling my identity mm. I'm not trying to distill it down to the most uh, as science kind of often does breaking it down to the most simplistic basic thing I'm like no nah, I'm not even trying to break anything down I'm just trying to like embrace it all because I am all of those things mm. even if it is even if my ancestor is Fijian who then um, was uh, kidnapped or abducted and taken to Tonga. They're mm -hmm. still, I'm still Fijian and I still claim that, you know. Mm. Yeah.
Cool. I haven't heard that um, Tangata Moana before. That's beautiful. I, I like that. Yeah, and it's um, also uh, those words exist in uh, Te Reo, Lea uh, Fakotonga, um, um, it exists in most of the islands mm. that live in Polynesia, mm. um, Tangata and Moana. Mm. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, I'll claim that. I, I'll cool. claim that more than um, Pacific Islander yeah. or um, Polynesian. And I've got, I don't even have any qualms with any of those names or labels. Mm. It's just that Tangata Moana exists within my vocab. So and, it I mean, should... and it means something to you. Yes, yeah, 100%. Cool. Um, I, I like what you're saying too about the Te Ao Māori pointing you back to who you were because that's actually been my experience as Pākehā as well is sort of discovering this Māori world and going like a whole lot of other Pākehā actually who have entered that world going there is something beautiful about culture here and we don't have it mm. so we want your culture mm. <laughs> um, and, and actually through that journey going no actually I want my culture yeah. you know I... I <laughs> What is my culture, you know? Yeah, and, right. and actually, we had um, our friends Takarati yes. on on the podcast, and and bro, he schooled me. <laughs> he he um, he asked me, you know, what is my culture? And I tried to explain a little bit, and then he said, bro, that's a terrible answer. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, um, but it's you know, like you look at um, primary schools on on cultural days, and yeah. you know, you've got. Um, you know, Māori, Indian, Samoan, Tongan, all in their uh, traditional dress, and you've got Pākehā kids in all black gear. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. that's all they got, you yeah. know. And actually, we all fuck a papa back to somewhere, yes. you know. Um, so the last cultural day, my, my girls wore kilts to school. Yeah. Um, because actually, <laughs> we fuck a papa back to, um, well, to all of the British Isles, actually. Yeah. But, um, but our name is Scottish, and... So we embrace that, and, and I think that's, that's been something that, you know, as you start to learn about others, you do celebrate the differences. Mm. You actually um, get permission to be more of who you are, yeah. uh, rather than trying to claim who someone else is, which, yeah, um, yeah I think that's, that's cool, bro. So when I first met you, yeah. or the first time I ever saw you, really, um, we were at the same church. Mm. And you'd been invited to get up and share one of your poems, mm. uh, along with Takarati, who um, you both got up and shared one. And, you know, for me, that was a, actually a bit of a life-changing moment because I'd never seen spoken word poetry before. Mm. And seeing you both get up and do that, I just went, well, I have to do that. You know, <laughs> there's something in me that has wanted this yeah. for a long time. And, uh, you know, it was the... Not just the performing of it, and not just the cleverness with words, but it was the storytelling. It mm. was the the bringing something that's inside of you out and placing it vulnerably in front of people. Yeah. Um, how did you first get into it? Oh, bro, it's um, it's kind of uh, an embarrassing story. <laughs> um, yes. Oh, we're all about vulnerability yeah. on the podcast. So. <laughs> Basically. Uh, at my old mahi as a youth worker there was this girl that I kind of liked and um, she was really into or going to a spoken word gig I hadn't really paid much attention to spoken word didn't you know we're talking like 2011 maybe or 10 I hadn't really paid much attention to it I had one of my best friends uh, was a spoken word poet but I kind of would scoff whenever she'd go to do her thing I was like whatever it was like lame um, 
And to be honest, I was quite like, as much as I was trying to like understand who I was on a cultural level, I was also trying to understand what what masculinity was. Mm. And so, you know, I was like, at the time involved in uh, mixed martial arts and um, boxing and, you know, all the things, mm. all the martial arts. Um, so, but I was kind of like in like uh, hyper-masculine, kind of toxic masculinity. Mm. That was kind of where I was camping sort of so the idea of spoken word was like like yeah i'm not gonna be caught dead doing that um or even going to that but uh hey heart there was this girl (laughs) who i heard was going to it and uh i completely lied through my teeth like oh yeah i love spoken word yeah i'll go with you (laughs) like let's go we should go you know um long story short it was a it didn't turn out that great um the the i wouldn't even call it a date it it was just a i don't know like anyway whatever um but i got uh i got to hear spoken word for the first time and um a friend of mine darren kamali was performing it was his book launch actually uh and i just remember what i observed in that room was it was such an eclectic group of people Mm. You had like Pākehā a couple, um, I assume they're a couple because they're holding hands, um, but they were both middle-aged wahine. And then you had like a whole bunch of uni students because MIT was just around the corner. Oh, yeah. They had their backpacks on and that. Then like there, there was like some people who looked like they'd just come off roadworks with some high-vis jackets or maybe from a factory, I don't know. They were in the audience and then... Uh, because this this uh, book launch was in Otara, there were some like homeless cats who were kind of yep. like just on the outskirts because there yep. was like free food and yep. whatnot in there. But um, it was like such an eclectic audience. Mm. That was the first thing I noticed. And then when Darren got up and he started doing this thing, I felt moved. But then I, you know, because I kind of grew up in church, if you feel something, you go and like, do a quick survey of the room to see if people are feeling it too and everybody was feeling it mm. and I was just like whoa this is amazing like we are people have literally come as they are they've come like straight from work or uni or mm. wherever and they were all on this journey just as I was and as I continued listening to his poetry I realized it was less well, in my humble opinion, at the time, mm. it was less poetry and more testimony mm. and more just honest and vulnerable. There's people telling their stories, eh? Yo, mm. and that's, that's literally what Darren was doing. And then a part of me, I clicked onto that and I was like, hold up, this dude's just sharing his testimony. Mm. But then I didn't, I didn't mean that in any kind of like a, like a looking down on it because I knew the power of testimony. Mm. I knew the power of being honest with your story. And... I just had like this thing in my head, like, mm. oh my gosh, like this is this is kind of what church should be like, <laughs> where people can just come as they are, literally, <laughs> and be moved by the human experience yeah. and be held together in a moment and be caught up in that moment and just be good. And I remember going up up to Darren at the end of the, uh, his his reading his performance and I was just like man that was amazing I love what you did man I wish I could do what you do and he literally said back to me 
uh, Russ, you can, you can do, you can do it, just do it. And the thing is, back in that uh, 2010, I had just gotten a tattoo on my arm, uh, Carpe Diem, Seize the Day. Mm. And I'd also seen, recently seen the movie Yes Man. And I kind of made it my thing that if someone asks me or if I get invited to do a thing, the answer will be yes. (laughs) So yeah, that's what I did. That was after that gig. I jumped into my back into my car. The date or flop of a date, uh, and the the weight of rejection kind of like mm. sitting with me, <laughs> kind of like that was so lame that that day. But um, feeling all those feelings, jumping into my car and um, just thinking, I'm I'm gonna try. I'm gonna give the spoken word thing a go. I don't know mm. exactly what it is. I'm just gonna give it a go. So um, I pulled out my iPhone four at the time and hit record and just started like talking into it and just expressing how I was feeling. I did that from Otara to my house, so that's about 15, 20 minutes. And I was getting real close to my house and I was like, oh, I'm feeling something. I'm feeling that there's something here in this thing that I'm doing. So I pulled up to the dairy that was like about maybe like another minute away from my house, like a minute walk. But I didn't want to sit in the driveway because, mm. yeah. So I just pulled up into the dairy. At this time, it's probably like, I don't know, like 9.45 or something like that. And I just continue. I keep speaking into my iPhone 4 and just like freestyling this, whatever this is, this verbal vomit. Mm. I remember, I can't remember whether it was like an hour, 20, an hour, a half, but some time went past. And I, I remember stopping it. Uh, my phone from recording and just feeling this real sense of like (sighs) like exhale almost and I just felt like strangely (laughs) at peace (laughs) with being rejected (laughs) and we went back to my house um, you know pretty much went to sleep woke up the next morning felt like a gazillion bucks I felt so good and I was like man what is this I feel I feel really, really good. Mm. Uh, and that's when I was like, man, there must be something in this spoken word thing. I, um, I listened back to it, uh, and there was a particular snippet that was, I felt was like kind of good. So like I mentioned earlier, one of my best friends at the time was a spoken word poet, and I sheepishly went to her, and I was, I was like, oh, sis, like, can you chuck these headphones on? Can you listen to this little bit? Like, what do you reckon? What, what do you think of this? And she, um, you know, she, she humoured me. She listened to it. <laughs> and I was, like, nervously kind of watching her face, like, wow. how's she reacting? Like, is it any good, you know? And, um, you know, I saw her kind of nodding her head a few times. And then she um, goes, bro, there's, yeah, there's something in this. You, you, should, um, you should work on this. Yeah. You should, you know, I reckon you should tweak it a bit. And, and you could make this a, a poem. And mm-hmm. from there, I pretty much got... Uh, two or three poems from that massive yeah. uh, chunk of audio. Yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. I had a very similar experience going along to to my first open mic night and and just feeling like these are my people. Yeah. Even though none of these people are my people, you know, <laughs> they're, they're not the people that I've grown up with. They're not the people I've hung out with, and yet I somehow get them. Yeah. And actually, I'm learning about life from them in a way that I haven't learned mm. about life before. Mm. Um, but also, I can get up and share vulnerably with them 
and they applaud me for doing that. Yeah. You know, there's no one mocking me. There's no one, you know, trying to pick holes in my story. There's just acceptance and welcome. And um, so, yeah, that whole kind of cathartic nature of it, I've, I've experienced that as well. And then, like, having experienced that for yourself, you managed to actually bring that into a youth space as well. You know, you've, you've worked using it in a youth, youth work environment, but also um, you're a big part of the, the high school yeah. um, spoken word, uh, what's called Word the Frontline. Yep. Um, right. How did that come about? Yeah, so um, just to back the truck up a little, after that, uh, showing my friend Grace, uh, Taylor is her name, she's an incredible poet. Yeah. She, um, yeah, she's, she, along with Darren and my friend Ramon, they started a crew called the South Auckland Poets Collective. And Grace was like, bro, you should go and read your poem and just see if you get in, you know. So I went and did it and got into South Auckland Poets Collective. And I got to be with, it was the first time I ever got to like be around other people who were intentionally writing, creating, had this intentionality around performance, Mm. around community. And to cut a long story short, I had the opportunity to go and run workshops, co-facilitate mm. with my friend Grace Taylor. And I saw the magic, the magic of what happened for me in my car. I got to forward that opportunity to young people mm. where they could have this, this moment of uh, catharsis and this moment of um, capturing, distilling their story mm. and then being able to share that taonga however scared and being heard Mm. being heard and being received and actually I'm just going to say this one story Uh, uh, myself and Grace were at uh, Onehunga High School and it was like this class like huge class of like 40 kids or something like that and these were all apparently the naughty kids and we're doing our workshop and it was like laughter and it was we're vibing you know but it's still a bit of like nonchalant standoffishness by some of the kids and we got to this this point in our workshop where it was like a a talanoa an opening of the fala as or the mat as we'd call it and there was this kid this like a pakia kid maybe there was only like two or three of them out of the 40 Mm. class and you could tell this kid isn't someone that the rest of the kids kind of hold with uh, reverence or you know whatever because he kind of, I don't know, like maybe he was like one of those uh, kind of oddball kids, maybe. Mm. He got up and he started sharing his poem. And I, I can't remember what his poem was about or anything like that. But I just remember the, some of the kids initially snickering at him like, oh, whatever. But as he went on, like this, this kid stood in his mana. He was like, no, I'm telling my story. Yeah. And the more he spoke, it was like he turned, he turned the entire room of like unruly teenagers onto his side to like, at different points now, the rangatahi were like, oh, like, you know, like, oh yeah, like cheering him on. And it was like a moment in time where this kid who from before we started the thing was outcasted mm. is now like, uh, I don't know if you've seen those memes, but we you know, it's like a battle rap thing. And when someone says like a really mm. cool line, all the kids like exploded, oh, like jumping yeah. up and down, linking. That's literally what happened for this kid mm. before he even finished his poem. 
it was almost like that moment of catharsis I felt in the car alone. Mm. Now it was being witnessed mm. by everyone else. And now that person who had the, the courage to stand in their mana, to stand in their truth, is now being accepted and embraced mm. because they're being seen for who they are mm. and not what they look like or not what they listen to or who they hang out with. They're being heard for who they are. Mm. Uh, children look to adults for their learning and their acceptance and their nurturing. Adolescents look to each other uh, mm. for direction, for acceptance. Um, and now, through this medium of spoken word, this kid who was on the out is now welcomed in by his peers mm. and now there's a sense of connection and bonding and so I was like man I've got to keep doing this I ended up working with my uh, one of my best friends at the time but also became my boss Ramon Ramon Narayan who's the uh, manager at Action Education and we're like yo let's let's really do the spoken word thing let's do the spoken word youth development thing and that became our main thing that we presented and fast forward a bunch of time we invited Luti Richards um, who is another poet and also part of South Auckland Poets Collective to jump on and work for us part-time and she came to us and um, she had this vision this dream this moi moya thing she was like man, I just had this vision of like David and Goliath and I'm, I'm going to butcher her for Carl, but <laughs> yes. something along the lines of like David coming to his Goliath with five stones but needing only one. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like our kids stepping up to their front line and to their Goliath and using their one stone, which is their voice and their truth mm -hmm. and speaking to that thing. And she was like, I want to I wanna do that. But for us, uh, but through slam, I want to create mm. like a inter high school spoken word slam. Mm. And me and Ramon, we had actually sort of talked about it previously, but like, oh no, it's too hard. It's like <laughs> don't don't think we've yeah. got the energy or the time or the resource to do it. But because Luti um, presented it that way, mm. <laughs> me and Mondo were looking at each other, at each other, and we're like, nah, let's do it, bro, yeah. let's do it. <laughs> so we started off with like I think it was like nine schools. And that was that was the beginning of Wood the Frontline. And I think now they've got like 40-something schools mm. and over 100-something students involved. They've had it at the Auckland Town Hall. It's just, it's just exploded. Mm. And so initially, the first ever Wood the Frontline, you, it was four people in a team. And you could do like a three-person poem. And, you know, we hadn't really done group poems that much mm. but we thought it was a cool opportunity for uh to to, to encourage kids to work together mm. rather than just having solo pieces mm. i've seen some actually i'll put i'll put um some links in the show notes um because there's a bunch of of uh, videos of that you can watch on youtube and some of them are just phenomenal like yeah i mean i i call myself a poet but and you some of those would kick my butt oh, yeah. I'm the same <laughs> I'm 100% the same some and, of these kids I'm like bro <laughs> um, but um, you know the, not only are they, are they doing amazing poetry but they're talking about amazing issues yes. you know they're talking about justice they're talking about environmental change they're talking about culture mm. um, they're talking about identity uh, are there any kind of I don't know themes or moments or anything from your time involved in it that 
stand out to you that you're just like, man, this is this is something else, or is it just there's, just the whole thing? There's so many. There's yeah. so many. Like it's a, it has been a real privilege and a real honour to bear witness to all of these young rangatira or young leaders uh, share and speak with mana and share and speak about their experiences unapologetically but then also be accepted by their peers because of them speaking mm. you know um, that's 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 been a massive mm. uh, gift for me yeah that's beautiful and um, I guess like we've talked about you you managed to combine this passion for the spoken word this way that it interacted with people uh, with a love of youth work mm. of wanting to see lives change what is it about youth work that that really drives you just to really distill it uh it's because of emeline afiaki because of ellen vaa because of sally Pyre. they were all youth workers out in south auckland and it had never dawned on me that you could actually do that as a job mm. <laughs> i just thought they were the coolest people uh like emeline afiaki tongan tahine or wahine who started up uh, AW Affirming Works. And I remember, like, I was sixth form when I when I first kind of met her and she was taking us on this a, a pilot leadership program. And I was just like, man, she's cool. And I was like, man, we're going on this cool camp. We're going to do all this stuff. And then I just, it, like, clicked in my head. I was like, hold up. Are you getting paid to do this? And she's like, yeah, this is, this is my job. This is my business. I started this, you know, this mm. youth development thing. I was like you mean I could do this? <laughs> she was like, yeah, if you wanted to. Like, yeah, mm. is this something you want to... Yeah, that's where it started. Wow. That, and, then, uh, and then I just kind of found myself in spaces with um, giants in my community. I've already mentioned them. Uh, Alan Vaa, who um, ran the Monaco Youth Centre. Mm. Uh, Sally Paya, who did heaps of work out in uh, Otara. Just these incredible individuals uh, who were doing things with people my age, I also was fortunate to get a job at uh, Youthline. When I came on board, Youthline was beginning to think about youth work, but the professionalization of youth work. Mm. So I kind of came in at a time where um, MSD under the Labour government, uh, under um, Helen Clark, was, um, she really was pouring a lot of um, money into uh, the Ministry of Social Development. And then what fell out of that is the Ministry of Youth Development. Um, and also at the time as well, this is when youth gangs was at an all-time high. You know, you had like the Killer Bees, Bloods, Crips, all manner of gangs was like rising up massive in South Auckland. And so, um, you know, and, I'm, and this is when I'm just like starting in my youth work mm. journey, you know. And also, I got to acknowledge, I was also like doing that as uh, during the day, and then I was a youth like youth leader at my church, mm. and then at night time, and then I became like a youth pastor. So, youth and the potential of young people uh, was something I was really it was really in the forefront of yeah. my thinking and my imaginings. Yeah. What are some of the the biggest things you've learned about yourself while being a youth worker? You know, from a Christian, uh, my Christian background, it used to try to teach me that it's not about me. It's not about you, bro. It's about everyone else. 
Um, it's about service, you know, self-sacrifice. But then kind of in my youth development work, they were kind of going, no, it is actually about you. Like it's fully about you. The mm. better you understand you, the better you are to everyone else. Yeah. So it was like this weird paradigm. Yeah. Um, but it's, then It's like the um, love your neighbor as you love yourself but forgetting to love yourself. Yes. You know, that, that actually, oh, let's all go love our neighbours, but if you don't love yourself, how can you do that? 100%. Because at Youthline, they were really encouraging uh, self-awareness because, you know, the and now I, I really, really embrace that mm. and that I'm, I'm about integration of self and the parts of myself that are, like, really ugly and hideous that I don't want to show anyone actually become some of the greatest learnings yeah. that I can share with other people and the way that I can connect with other people and the, the degree of grace and patience yeah. and kindness that I showed in myself actually is the degree of patience and kindness I can genuinely and authentically give to others. Mm. You know, so it was like, that was probably the superpower, one of the many superpowers mm. that youth work gave me. Mm. And we're sitting now in your um, your workplace. <laughs> yeah. uh, and do you want to just describe like what it is that you're doing now? Yeah, so um, I work for Voice Whakarongo Mai. And Voice Whakarongo Mai is an independent organisation that advocates for young people in care. Um, so when I say care, I'm talking about young people who the state have taken custody of. Mm. Uh, so that's uh, Oranga Tamariki, previously known as SIFs. So I'm talking foster kids, youth justice, secure group homes, SGHs, care and protection. Um, care and protection units are units where young people who uh, it isn't safe for them, mm. be it at home or maybe they're not safe to themselves. So they mm. get put in a care and protection unit for a time. Now the thing with Rangatahi, uh, Tamariki and Pepe that are in care of the state or a, a child of the state or a ward of the state, whatever terminology you want to mm. use, um, oftentimes there are many services attached to them, many decision makers making decisions for them and about them, but oftentimes their own voice gets lost in the red tape. So we help advocate, we amplify the voices of care-experienced young people or children or babies that's that's solely why we're there we're, we're there just to amplify their voices we're a megaphone but we don't have any power as far as like we're not youth workers we're not social workers we're not lawyers we're youth advocates mm. and so it's a it's a difficult space to be in to mm. be honest bro because you're kind of powerless yeah. in some respects you don't get to make the decisions nah no. but you ride alongside them yeah yeah hard so that's what I do. So I'm the I'm the kaiārahi or team leader for Te Wai Um and we have uh, staff. Most of our staff are based here in Ōtetahi, but we've got two staff in um, Otipoti in Dunedin who cover the lower south. Mm. And in the future, God willing, we'll have staff in Nelson as well. Yeah, because um, yeah, there's there's roughly about. 1300 uh, young people in care in the South Island. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and That's some. A lot. Yeah, it's heaps. And some of them have like mad trauma. Mm. Um, you know, it's just, yeah. So it's, yeah. So you're getting alongside them and you're loving them and you're 
you're, like you say, amplifying their voice. Uh, we're in this amazing room where like, you've got all these quotes from the kids all over the wall. Do you want to just maybe read a couple of the ones that, yeah. that speak to you? Some of them have got heaps of hope. Some of them are just break your heart. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's one quote here. Uh, no matter how happy families can be, there's always a dark place that could destroy all companionship. Wow. Um, uh, we want to feel like we matter. Yeah. Um, people always ask what I want in those meetings, referring to a family group conference, mm. and then say, ah, oh, nah, can't do that. So it's like, why do they even ask? Wow. Um, when I'm not locked up, it's hard to sleep. Wow. Uh, independence means being able to go places by myself, make my own decisions. There's heaps, man. Yeah, and and so I mean, this is this this is the things the kids are saying to you guys. Yep. Um, this is the the sort of things they're feeling, they're going through, and you're getting alongside them and and making sure that as much as you can that their voices are heard. Yeah. Um, I almost feel like crying to be honest. It's it's um, yeah. It's hard. Uh, and yet it's beautiful at the same time, you know, the beauty in working within a, a broken system, but bringing life into that space. Um, yeah. If you were to uh, change something in New Zealand, be it attitudes or the system or something, with regard to youth, what would you change? If there was a magic wand you could wave and yeah. just... Just... I, I would want, I would, I would want the attitudes of adults and young adults to change, and their attitudes around trauma. Mm. I feel like, you know, we get in this system, man. It's so, it gets incredibly punitive. It's incredibly, um, it's it's punitive. It's mm. punitive. You do an action, we treat you a particular way, but we're not prepared. And we don't want to look into why you did those actions and what were the things that caused you to do those things. Like, it's kind of like, dude, if we as a country understood trauma even just a little bit better, then we would, I guarantee you, we would then become a whole lot more compassionate, more kind, mm. um, more caring. Mm. Because when you, when you talk about trauma you are inviting uh it's an invitation to humanity to the humanness mm -hmm. of people uh, when you talk about actions and things that need to be done because you know cause and effect you can then create a thing that we currently are in which is like a mechanical machine that only deals with those things but doesn't deal like just this today um i was watching uh the um, Involve Conference online. Mm. It's an Involve Conference is a national conference, biannual conference um, about youth development, and you've got social workers, youth mm. workers, and the like. They get together every two years. And this lady who um, ran the youth survey, uh, the youth survey mm. is one of the, if not the largest youth survey taken across up and down the country of as many young people as they can interview and run a survey on. And um, they were talking about like how uh, in general, generally speaking, from I think it was like from 2001 
uh, one pool of data and comparing it to 2019. Okay, so that's mm. like 20 years difference thereabouts. And I was talking about like how um, compared to 2001, alcohol consumption by young people has gone down. Uh, drug use has gone down. Unprotected sexual activity has gone down. You go, oh, that's good. However, depression has gone up. Mental illness has gone up. And the thing that kind of mm. like began to, I wonder, and I've got no legs to stand on this. <laughs> this is just a wondering. Mm. It's like, okay, cool. So we've like, oh, and smoking has gone down. Alcohol has gone down. Mm. What drives us to do those things? Sometimes it's uh, because we want to hang out with our friends and it's mm. good times. But on the more dangerous end of that, it's coping mechanisms. Yeah. It's things that we try and use to cope with the difficulties of life. Mm. What happens when you remove the coping mechanisms? Well, now you've got all those things are now unmasked. Yeah. And we now have lab labels for them, like depression. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know if it was for you, but for me, in 2001, ain't nobody talking about depression yeah. or anxiety or mental illness, you know, or mental health. Mm. It was, uh, you know... And so it's kind of yeah. like, you know, I feel like now, and I'm not saying we need to go back to using uh, vices to deal with yeah, our yeah. trauma. That's not what I'm implying. Yeah. But essentially what I'm saying is, if we as a country could um, get better uh, schooled up or informed around trauma, yeah. that would, I believe, uh, change how we interact with each other and it would cause the system, the system's the machinery that we've created to to engage with us differently. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a beautiful note to end on, and um, I guess that's a challenge to us all to. Uh, I mean, because that can be something that would change on a massive scale, but actually boil it right down to to people who are listening right now. Mm. You know, this is something we can all do, where we can start to see a behaviour that we don't like, a behaviour that we think is problematic and ask ourselves, what's going on for that person? Yes. You know, what's behind that? So yeah, I, I love that challenge, bro, and thank you for leaving us with that. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for, for being that inspiration for me, um, you know, and, and being that uh, sounding board for me a number of times over the years as well. And um, bro, on behalf of all the youth and the, the young people that you've helped, just a massive thank you um, for all that you do to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Hello, hello heaven Will I hear you whisper to come near Dietrich is one of the biggest hearted people I know and it was a privilege to sit with him as he shared his journey with us and what a powerful challenge he left us at the end about trauma about looking beyond behaviour to the situations that may be manifesting in those behaviours to see a person's worth, their mana. So thank you, Dietrich, for your heart and your words, and here is a blessing for you. Dietrich, may you continue to hear the voice of little Dietrich, looking at Maui and asking, where do I belong? And may that keep driving you to explore your place in the world, discovering more and more of what makes you you. And may you give yourself permission to lean into that, knowing that the best you is the best for everyone else too.
Just as you desired a role model who looked like you, may Tangata Moana and Tangata Whenua Tamariki and Rangatahi be inspired by you and the way that you show up for them, showing them that they can be more than their situation suggests. May you continue to have moments of seeing the difference it makes in the life of young people when they are accepted and embraced, and may you continue to find ways to facilitate that for others. In moments of despair, when the machine seems too broken, when the obstacles seem too large, may you be filled with hope by even the smallest glimpse of goodness in yourself, your marriage, and in others around you, knowing that this is what bringing a bit of heaven down to earth is all about. And lastly, may the ocean forever be a highway linking you to your ancestors and inspiring you as you navigate both calm and turbulent waters as you continue to make a difference in the lives of those you meet wherever you go. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time for another amazing conversation. It was to be a guest from the States, but his daughter brought COVID home from school. Uh, So we've hit pause on that, but rest assured, I'm lining up a few other awesomely ordinary people to chat with in the next week or so to inspire you as you look to bring a bit of heaven down to earth in the spaces you occupy in the world. Until then, me inoi tato. E tō mātau matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Hommai kia mātau ai nei E taroma mātau mō tēnei rā Muro mātau hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei I o te hunga e harana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea Kia whakawaia Engari whakorangia mātou I te kino 